Welfare and government assistance in the United States has a long history of prejudice policies that negatively affect mothers of color. Prior to the 1960s, black women were not legally able to receive full assistance through the Aid to Dependent Children, otherwise known as the ADC. A big change occurred during the 1960s, however, when welfare cases increased significantly due to the citizens finally having better access to them. This was spurred on by the hard work of the National Welfare Rights Movement, and more specifically, the Welfare Mothers Association. Most of the activists at this time who were leading the fight for improved access to better public assistance were black women. Unfortunately, by the 1970s, this fight was colonized by white women who viewed the national welfare problem to be solely a women's issue. This, in effect, erased the intersectionality of the entire fight surrounding prejudice policies based on class, race, and gender. Post the 1960s, with the onset of the new Ford administration, government assistance was devolved from the federal level down to states' control. This, in turn, decentralized the national welfare rights movement and activist groups lost a significant amount of their power. Since the Ford administration, states, including New York, now have the power to develop their own welfare programs and regulations, which has had a significant impact on women of color, who are targeted directly through the ever-changing policies. Welcome to Yonkers' government aid programs, an investigation of their effects on mothers of color. I'm your host, Alia Modud. In this episode, I will be discussing the history and current state of government assistance and welfare programs in the city of Yonkers, as well as their effects on women of color who receive their aid. Yonkers follows a similar trajectory as the rest of the United States. In the 1960s, the Welfare Mothers Association had a Yonkers chapter, where members of the association took part in a 30-hour sit-in. There were two goals for this protest. The first was to be treated better by caseworkers, and the second was for mothers to receive a coherent breakdown of the benefits they would be receiving, of which they were entitled to by law. There have been many issues faced by mothers of color regarding welfare and public assistance in Yonkers since it was decentralized from the federal government. One significant factor in these struggles is the emphasis that the government puts on personal responsibility. The Personal Responsibility Act came out of the Ford administration that was adamant on welfare reform. This essentially forced most of the women who were on welfare into the low-paying service part of the economy. Carol Robinson, the director of the Early Childhood Programs at Family Services of Westchester, for three years compares the significance of personal responsibility as a policy versus its impacts on the individual. That on policy statement, personal responsibility looks good, but how it's administered and when you individualize it to other people's real life, there is a mismatch there. A consistently pressing conflict between government aid programs and the women of color who are receiving them is the lack of control that the latter feels as though they have. This is, in part, due to the constantly shifting and limiting regulations that are implemented by the government. Kyle Robinson explains how this is exemplified in the relationships between women of color and their social workers. Well, some of them wanted to go to college. Mm -hmm. and they wanted to go to a four-year school 
but they were encouraged not to go to a four-year school. They should be going to a two-year school, which many of them did. And then they would also get placed in certain training programs. So sometimes their feeling was the training program that they wanted to be in was not the one that was available to them because the government didn't offer that. A result of the Personal Responsibility Act has been the increase in promoting workfare policies. In a 2005 testimony, Commissioner Robert Doerr presented a list of goals for families who were on welfare. One of them was to increase the amount of welfare recipients who were going into the workforce. In theory, this sounds like a great idea. However, there are deeply sexist and racist undertones within Doerr's remarks. This workfare promotion assumes that women in these families are not doing enough or that they are able to enter the workforce just as easily as those who are not of the same socioeconomic status. Athena Dent, who is an active member in the Yonkers community, advocate for families with special needs children, and has years of experience working as a social worker, expands on why many women have been obligated into the welfare programs. Um, you have women who, for whatever reason, they were in abusive relationships or marriages, and when they decided to get out, they had nothing, so they had to get on welfare. I knew quite a many women like that. Housing through government programs seem to have some of the most overtly prejudiced policies. Carol Robinson describes how housing instability stems from the unsupportive rent situation in Yonkers. They're moving from place to place because the rents are so high. Okay. And the rents are high, and even in public housing, and one policy that affects families that live in public housing is if the salary of one member of the household goes up, the rent changes and they do these recertification. So if I'm living with my husband and my daughter and my daughter gets a salary increase, then the rent goes up. So because the rent goes up by income, you know, you get a hundred dollars more and now you're paying, and most of the time it's not in proportion to what went up. So you may be getting a hundred dollars more rent, a hundred dollars more than you pay, but your rent has gone up 150 for every month. She recalls one of the women she has worked with who faced the rent barrier personally. This young lady, she had the goal to get a full-time job and she did get a full-time job. But what she found out is that she lost her housing because she started making too much money but she was still on the poverty line and what was too much money two hundred dollars more than the guidelines despite the infamous 1980 desegregation case that intended to integrate schools by placing public housing throughout the city yonkers did not accomplish the goal that the federal government set out for it housing throughout the city is still extremely segregated and public housing still exists in pockets mainly in the southwest to this day, areas like Slobum are distinctly different from the Northeast, as Ms. Robinson describes it. I can remember one neighborhood most of them came from was Slobum in um, Yonkers. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that they were living life, lavish lifestyles in Slobum. Section 8 is a part of public housing in Yonkers that seems to have a mix of benefits and downfalls. Athena Dent describes the different aspects of the program. You could only work a certain amount of hours at a per-time job in order to maintain Section 8. If you work two hours over, they would 
terminate the Section 8. So what that did for the socioeconomic issues with women of color, it actually was a good and bad thing. The good thing was it allowed a lot of women of color to go to school. Because if I could only work a certain amount of hours at a job, then I had free time. So I know a lot of women, they actually went back to school. They went back to college. They got their associates, their bachelors, their masters. So that was the positive thing. The issue that so many women of color are facing with rent and public housing is the fact that they are being set up for failure. While Section 8 housing says that it is helping pay rent, it is requiring that people who are receiving the help do not work over a certain amount of hours. This forces people to remain in the same economic sector and punishes them when they move up, while simultaneously pushing workfare policies without any assistance or job training. To put it simply, Minimum wage in correlation to rent. It doesn't add up. It is clear that bias against women of color exists throughout government assistance and welfare policies in Yonkers. From rent to the Personal Responsibility Act to workfare, the system keeps proving that they are not truly trying to provide supportive assistance to mothers who need it. Beyond policymaking, there's a lot of racism and sexism experienced on a personal level by mothers of color. Carol Robinson expands on the attitudes towards mothers of color, even by their own social workers. When it's a minority group in need, the attitude is different. Um, and people get treated differently, even in the welfare system. So a Caucasian woman with a child, oh, it's so sad, poor thing. Hmm. African-American woman, same situation. She's lazy, she's irresponsible. So there are those attitudes and racism does play its role within social services because people are treated differently based on their race. Unfortunately, because of these stereotypes and deep-rooted prejudices, mothers of color often don't get the acknowledgement for all the hard work and care they put into their families that they deserve. Athena Dent discusses all that these mothers are accomplishing while still on welfare. Um, that's the thing that I think um, has been uh, misconstrued um, when it comes to um, really understanding government programs and how it has affected uh, women of color. Uh, not enough has been focused on the hardworking women of color in all of our communities, um, especially um, in the cities. Um, these are women who are working and they're getting their master's degrees or they're getting their associate's degrees. It is important, however, to acknowledge the parts of social services that are providing supportive aid to families. Athena Dent explains how social workers help both parents and kids, even if their kids have been put in foster care. Not only do we have to look after the well-being of our children and making sure that the foster parents had everything that they needed, uh, a form signed, um, if I needed to go to one of the other foster care agencies, if a child was moved, like Leakin Watts, St. Christopher's Inc., we also had to help the parents. Those parents who felt, you know, they either relapsed, they were doing good, but something happened. You know, we try to help them get back on their feet. Um, parents who 
made mistakes, they realize it and, you know, they are going to parenting classes, they're going to rehab, they're going to job training. You know, we have to help them with all of that. Trauma screenings have also become a more prevalent practice among social workers than they have ever been previously. Research shows that a lack of acknowledgement of the trauma that Black and Latina mothers experience within the child welfare system can be emotionally and financially detrimental to them. Carol Robinson describes the work that Family Services of Westchester is currently doing to try and provide support to mothers and their families. Well, now we do more of the ACEs training and we've gotten more education in childhood adverse experiences. So now for the most part in our programs that serve low-income women, we do that screening and we do our mental health referrals because we know a lot of people in those situations, even people who are not in those situations, sometimes have high ACE scores. And with those adverse childhood experiences, it does lead into other issues like depression and anxiety. And now we're even paying attention to children that are asthmatic because there's a correlation between the physical health of a family and their trauma. Even if there are positive changes that are being implemented, the Yonkers government aid and welfare system has a long way to go in improving its work regarding mothers of color. Trauma screenings should continue being done, but regardless of whether a person has been screened or not, all caseworkers should be trained in a trauma-informed approach when interacting with mothers of color. Something that is already being done, which should receive more support from the city, is the building of community gardens. This has not only helped bring the community together and provide a sense of pride in something the people have built for themselves, but it has fantastic benefits nutritionally. Ms. Robinson explains the importance of community gardens in Yonkers for people receiving government aid. We don't grow our food. We don't have, we live in apartments. So we don't have the ability to supplement our diet with our own vegetable gardens. So that creates a real insecurity. And that is why I support community gardens. So at least people, the community and the children can learn how food grow. Lastly, Ms. Dent discusses the importance of job training and more educational opportunities that should be put in place in order to introduce mothers into a world of self-sufficiency. Welfare needs to put in services where they can go for job training, where they can get a degree, where they can go to school and increase their educational and skills levels so that they can get a better job. Public assistance in Yonkers is a microcosm of how it has been on a federal level and within the rest of the United States. There has been a serious race and gender-based bias against mothers of color who are in need of support from the government through both policy and interpersonal interactions. This must change. The government needs to begin enacting policies that are truly supportive, rather than pushing mothers into the first job they can find that barely keeps themselves and their families afloat. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yonkers' Government Aid Programs, an investigation of their effects on mothers of color. For more information and podcasts, please visit the Yonkers Public Library website at ypl.org.